As the people of God, we have been created and recreated to worship God. Worship is the greatest event of our lives. What we do here every Lord's Day morning and evening is greater than any event that you have ever participated in or will participate. And all the events that you have participated or will participate outside of worship, it is the glorious reality for our creation and recreation, the history of the world from creation to consummation finds its significance in the worship of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those who know him and those who see him cannot but stand in awe of the majesty and the splendor of him, him who is our God. We, with profound gratitude, joy, and satisfaction, worship our God. There's no one like Him. And that's why the psalmist proclaims, in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forever and forever. Because God is who he is, not only the creator of earthly pleasures, but also the fountainhead of all joy and eternal pleasures, we find our existence in him. And so, my dear friends, as we find complete fulfillment and satisfaction and meaning in him, it is found in this world and in the world to come in our worship of him. In fact, what happens in this place from day to day or from week to week, from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, is the single most determining event in your life. It's the most determining feature of your entire life. It is in our worship of God, in the presence of Him who's made us and recreated us in the image of His Son, that our souls find their hope. But also, it is here that God inspires us to serve Him in the world, to live the life of faith as we've been created to do. This day, as the Puritans love to say, is the market day of our souls. It is here that we are nourished. It is here that our faith is strengthened through the means of grace. It is through all these ordinances that God has ordained for us that we enjoy on the Lord's Day in corporate worship, in the singing and the praising of God, the reading of Scripture, in prayer, in listening to the sermon and preaching the sermon, in tasting that God is good at the table. It is in all these things that we are in the presence of God. 
And how you remember in Exodus 24, the elders, they had a meal with God. And how the apostles enjoyed fellowship with God. We do now as well through faith. And our lives then are renewed in this place through the adoring of God. The one who has redeemed us through the blood of the Lamb. The one who loves us and has given himself for us. And perhaps in the entire scripture, I've alluded to some, we've sung some of the biblical selections today. But probably Revelation chapter 4 and 5 is the best expression of what we long for as we worship God. Because here John has been given the extraordinary privilege to see heaven's worship. He's never attended a worship service like this in which he sees with such power the reality of heaven's worship. He experiences what true worship truly is. As he comes into the presence of the majestic God, the holy triune God, as he says in verse 2, as at once I was in the Spirit. And my dear friends, dear people of God, my prayers that this be our experience this morning. As we follow John, as it were, through the door opened to heaven's worship. And if you've tasted heaven's worship, you'll want to come back again and again and again. There's nothing like it in all the earth. There is no physical, earthly entity that can satisfy the soul of humanity other than God in Christ, experienced in worship. And so this morning, first, I want to show you what John shows us, that there is an open door to heaven's worship. The apostle John, he sees this door, and it's open to heaven, and as he's, he's looking at that open door, he hears a voice, a voice that's familiar to him, and that voice is inviting him. That voice says, come up here and I'll show you what must take place. Now, why is it familiar to the Apostle John? Well, it's because he's heard that voice and that he's recorded for us in Revelation 1 verse 10. It is the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Word himself the exalted Savior. Now what does it mean by the words, I will show you that which must take place after this? Well, it's not that John receives all the details of world history like some think and all the future events. No, John is caught up here in the throne room of the triumph God. But the question is Why? Why does our Lord Jesus Christ bring John to this place? Well, 
to see what will take place after this. And what does he see? The victorious worship of the triumph God and the triumph of the Lamb of God. Now, we'll speak about that glorious reality, but why is it so important for John? Why at this time, why does our Lord take him into heaven's worship? Well, do you remember what preceded this chapter? Chapters 1, 2, and 3. John's vision here is so important. Our Lord Jesus Christ begins like this after his letters to the seven churches to assure his children that Christ Jesus is victorious, that he's the one who's on the throne. Here are real churches in Turkey. And they experience the day-to-day pressures and the, the life of living it in a fallen world. Often in hostile situations. They were real people with real problems and struggles. And you remember, if you remember the seven letters of our Lord Jesus Christ to the churches, our Lord tells each of them, to overcome. They are called to overcome, to persevere, to press on, to keep going. And the question is, how will they do that? How will they continue with all the persecution, with the struggles of life, with the uncertainty, with the, with the pleasures of this world and our own flesh railing sometimes an ally with the evil one? How will they overcome? Answer, by setting their gaze upon God and the Lamb. Upon setting their gaze upon God and the Lamb. And so it's as if Jesus is saying to his dear children, Take your eyes off the earthly and gaze through heaven's open door and see right into the throne room of God. And you will see an all-glorious and all-powerful and all-sufficient, all-transcendent and all-conquering God. The vision of God in all His glory Jesus is saying to the church, is the answer to all and every problem. And so John writes these things down for the church, and the Spirit of God has inscripturated these words for us. And he's saying to us, as you go through that open door, as you gaze upon heaven, as you see the Lamb and all the glorious worship, no matter what is happening in your life, you'll be able to overcome. You'll be able to overcome. And do you know why this is true? Because in worship, in corporate worship, we are blessed. We are fed with manna come from heaven, satisfying our souls. And it is through these means of grace, that's why we call them just means of grace, ordinary means of grace, God seeks 
to feed you. As we learn then to feast upon Christ each Lord's Day, we are enabled then to go out into the world and we see the world and all the events from heaven's perspective because John is showing us heaven's perspective. And thus we are giving a new perspective then as we enter the work week. The new week on Monday, we see things from a new perspective. We have new lenses as it were and we say, ah, yes, Christ is on the throne directing all the events of history. Nothing's going amiss. All according to his purpose. And so what is it that John sees as he goes through the open door and that he wants you and me to see this day and each Lord's Day? Well, significantly two things. First, heaven's throne. John was caught up, he says, in the spirit. And the focus of his vision is a throne in the center of heaven. Now, if you've read recently the book of Revelation, you will know that the throne is of significance in this book. It has central significance to the message of this vision and also the book. The word throne occurs in the New Testament around 60 times, and 47 of those times are in this last book, penned by John. And 17 of those are in chapters 4 and 5, as John shows us heaven's worship. Now, John is well acquainted with the Old Testament imagery from the experiences of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, those who were in the presence of God and experienced the beauty of holy worship. And the main thing that John wants to convey to the churches is that there is a throne in heaven and that throne is occupied. It's occupied. It's not empty. No, God has done it. And John describes what he sees in verse 3. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. These precious stones, something we'll speak about in our Sunday school class, these precious stone, stones highlights the brilliance and the glory and the splendor of Almighty God. The Apostle Paul, even as we have sung this morning, says that God dwells in light unapproachable who no man can see or will see. And then encircling the throne, he sees this rainbow. The same rainbow that Ezekiel saw in his vision. And it came from the throne. And there were flashings of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Now John understands these pictures and he knows you understand them as well because you know the Old Testament. The rainbow is a reminder to John and to the church of God's gracious covenant mercy to this world, to a fallen world, promising never again to destroy the world 
in a flood. No, our God is a God who is long-suffering, a God who is gracious, the giver of the new creation. The flashes of lightning remind John of that summit on Mount Sinai where God descended to meet with his people. A terrible sight. It was so frightening, remember, that even Moses was exceedingly fearful. And what John is communicating through this use of language, these Old Testament pictures, is the supreme majesty and supreme grandeur of him who occupies the throne of heaven. He is an awesome God, an awesome, terrible God. And John also sees the Holy Spirit before the throne, verse 5. The seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, representing the seven lamps of fire, the menorah, which are the seven spirits of God. This is the same picture of the Holy Spirit that John records for us in chapter 1, verse 4. As he gives the salutation, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. That is the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold fullness of the Holy Spirit. The fullness of the power of God who acts in all his power as he proceeds from the Father and the Son and does the work that God has ordained. And so you might ask, where is the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, he is the voice that we are hearing, that John hears, the one who is taking John, as it were, by the hand and take him up into heaven's glory. It is our Lord Jesus, the exalted Christ, the one who's loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood and who now lives forever and forever. And he is taking John as it were, and he is saying, John, John, look it. This is the triumph of my kingdom. This is my glorious kingdom that I've purchased with my own blood. Come, see heaven's worship for all it is. And there's more. Notice John says that before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, verse 6, like crystal, a place of tranquility of peace, serenity. Now, why is John including this? What's John saying? Well, John is telling us of what the sea symbolizes in the Old Covenant, particularly also in the New Covenant. Because in Scripture, the sea always speaks of chaos. Genesis 1, 1, and 2. And of opposition 
to the kingdom of God. Just think of the flood, the Red Sea, Psalm 93 that we read this morning. Think of the Sea of Galilee. And in all these situations, the sea is rising up against God and against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking her overthrow, her destruction. They are all threatening to destroy the church. But as the psalmist says in Psalm 93, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. And our Lord Jesus Christ now is taking John and he is showing him the meaning of Psalm 93. That our God reigns. And that mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mighty, mightier than the waves of the sea is the Lord on high, the mighty one. And so the Lord is victorious. And he's showing John this glorious picture, this reality. And how beautiful it is. And my dear friends, our Lord Jesus showed John this vision so he might show the church these beleaguered, suffering, oppressed, persecuted churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying to his dear saints, come, look up here. This is reality. This will give you the correct perspective on life on this planet so that you might overcome. And dear people of God, that's what our Lord Jesus Christ is saying to you this morning. Come. Come up here. He's taking you by the hand and he's saying, see things clearly from my perspective. Heaven's perspective. This is the reality that so often veils us and escapes us. But what a glorious reality is. The glorious picture of Christ Jesus taking us into the throne room of Almighty God. As it were, the very courts of the holiest of holy. And we are brought there. And that's what God, by His Spirit, means to do with us each worship service. This is what the Spirit does. We, as it were, we sometimes hear that song, Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. It's actually the other way around, brothers and sisters. As John tells us, he was, he was lifted up by the Spirit and that's what the Spirit of Christ does. He lifts us up and He brings us into the great throne room of King Jesus with all the saints in glory. He lifts us up and He says, this is ultimate reality. This is worship. And so we are worshiping together with all the saints. There's redeemed saints. The saints are already made, been made perfect. 
with the saints around all the world. We are worshiping our true God. And as Christ Jesus then calls us, invites us, he says, come with me. He holds our hand as it were. He says, walk through this open door. And there's the Father. And he holds out his golden scepter. And he says to you and me, come and worship. And if, and when we experience this, we can never be the same. Because what do you see? The triumph of our glorious God. The victory of His Son, Jesus Christ. And because of the triumph of Jesus Christ, the saints in the seven churches were enabled to persevere. And so can you. And so can you. Because Christ Jesus has already secured the victory. And so as you live this life, you live it by faith. You see him who is unseen, but you live by faith because he has shown you, as he's shown John, the things that must take place after this. He has shown you, he has given you the end of the story. He said, this is how it's, this is true reality. And so you live your life from that perspective. And this is what we constantly need to hear, dear brothers and sisters. Life's difficult. We live in a fallen world and we know it. We feel it. And we need God's perspective on our situation. So often we become tunnel visions, visioned. We misinterpret world events and the incidences of our own lives because we don't see the great picture. But we need God's perspective on how things really are rather than on how things appear to be. Probably most of you have flown before and when you're 16,000, 20,000 feet above this earth, you see things from a different perspective. Gives you the whole lay of the land. Things look pretty insignificant, don't they? But we see the big picture. And that enables you to then fit yourself in the little picture, all the details of your life within that picture. And this is why the vision of John is given to the church. And it's so crucial for us to understand this. In fact, this is one of the most important lessons for us as Christians. To have our minds shaped by God's perspective on world history. As we find ourselves part of it. We must understand that all the things that are happening on this earth is but a stage for God to build his church. 
And do you know how you get that perspective of God? It's by coming to worship. Lord's Day after Lord's Day, morning and evening, to receive from God what he so desires to give you, Christ himself, who is the expository of wisdom and grace. And so the focus of John's vision is the, is the throne and he who occupies it, the almighty, the glorious, the splendid, majestic, triune God. But there's a second thing that John sees, and that's heaven's worship. First, heaven's throne, and now heaven's worship. And we've talked about heaven's worship a lot already, but, but, but now it's particularized. John sees and he hears the response of him who is seated on the throne. First, he says, there are these 24 elders seated on 24 thrones, and they surround the throne of God. And they're all clothed with white and with golden crowns upon their heads. Now, who are these elders? Well, there have been many different suggestions, but most likely they are the elders identified as the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, thus representing the the entire community of the Old and New Covenant, the entire redeemed of the Lord. And they're gathered in white garments in God's presence, experiencing satisfaction and joy and pleasure. But you notice the reason why they are like this. They are, their eyes are gazing upon the throne and worshiping the Lord. It's so beautiful. You can't miss it. Their eyes are on the great event that's happening. And they take their golden crowns, John said, and those that they have already received. They're more than conquerors, remember? And now they take them and cast their crowns before the throne. And they say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And also around the throne, John says there are four living creatures. Now what do these these strange creatures represent? Well, we know John is picking up the language of these living creatures from the visions that Ezekiel had and Isaiah's visions. Among the earthly creatures, the lion is the king of the jungle. The kids know that. The ox is the strongest of domesticated animals. The eagle, most majestic in flight, and the man, the ruler over them all. And I think what John is doing is he's reflecting then the greatness and the strength and the majesty and the dominion of their creator. And he uses the number four. John loves using numbers. Number four is symbolic of creation in all its fullness. The four winds of heaven. The four corners of the earth. And in their number then they represent the entire creation. Remember this is what Adam was called to do. To bring all creation into the worship of 
of Almighty God. But the most important thing about the 24 elders and the four living creatures is to notice what they are involved in. Now, truly, there might be some mystery as to what they represent, but there is no mystery as to what they are doing. They are all involved in the worship of him who is seated on the throne. They are engaged in magnifying his name. They are absorbed with him, their king, their worship, true worship. You see, it's always God-centered worship. And notice the refrain from Isaiah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's almost as if every repetition they realize with more and more clarity the infinite otherness of God. That he is most distinct from his creation. He is transcendent above But he's also the eternal God who was and who is and who is to come. Reminiscent of God's self-disclosure, you remember, to his servant Moses at the burning bush. He's Israel's covenant God. That he is the creator and sustainer of all things. Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God loves his creation. He looks in the depths of the sea. He sees the marvel of his wisdom, his creative power and might. He created you, the crown of his creation. He created you and he sustains you. And you get this sense, don't you, that all of heaven then is caught up in the great act of worship. All they're doing, if you had to say one word, all they're doing is worship. And it doesn't look like anyone's bored there. They're all enjoying the glorious refrain, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Well, my dear friends, the sheer exuberance of worship that we find in these chapters. Day and night, they do not cease to praise God, to proclaim His greatness and the marvels of all the wonders that He has wrought. And with all their being, they are occupied in continual praise. And so John is caught up in real worship in heaven. And so for you and me, as we consider heaven's throne and heaven's worship, have you overheard the worship of heaven this morning? Have you seen a glimpse of the glory and the majesty of God? Do you see yourself as as so small and almost insignificant, except that God created you for his glory and he's redeemed you so that you might exalt him and reflect back to him his glory? 
And if you have, you'll never be the same again. You'll never be satisfied until you've tasted this again and again and again and again. You'll have an eternal thirst for the worship of God. And that's why the church, throughout all her ages, has said, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. This is what we wanted to. This is what we are designed and redeemed to do. So much of the focus of worship in the modern church is aimed at human experience rather than on God. But you see the irony of it all. It's only when we're lost in wonder, love, and praise of him who is seated on the throne of majesty himself, the one who created all things, the one who sustains all things, the one who is sovereign over all things, that we experience love divine, all love excelling. It's only as we engage in God-centered worship that we discover that the God we come to glorify is the God we've come to enjoy. There is no greater satisfaction in all the earth because earthly things don't satisfy. No true worship by definition must be God-centered, Christ-exalting worship. And it's only by the Spirit of Christ, the seven, the seven spirits who are before the throne that we might enjoy His fellowship. And that's why God seeks worshipers who have his spirit and know the truth. And so John was gloriously privileged to be ushered into heaven on that day. But you know, you and I have that privilege here every Lord's Day. Every Lord's Day, this congregation, this church is opened. And as you're to think about this, you're to think about not just doors opening with an exit side over it. No. You're to think about holy worship as Christ Jesus takes you by the hand and he takes you from your home, from your dorm room, wherever it might be. And he says, come, come, come. Come and see the glory of heaven's worship. And he ushers you in then by the power of his spirit. He inclines your heart to give you that which his world can never give you. He's created you for worship. And that's why every man and woman, every boy and girl on the face of the earth, they're all worshipers. We're being created to worship. We must worship something because God's created us for that. But bless God that he has changed our hearts. So that he has recreated us in Christ so that we might now adorn him, the only true and living God. And so I asked you this morning, is this your heart's response to our God? Who is majestic in holiness, awesome 
in glory, working wonders. This is what the four creatures do. This is what the elders do. And that ought to be the theme of your lives. Wholehearted worship. And even though John struggles to describe the immensity and the glory of the one who's seated on the throne, the one who's beyond our comprehension, He's not incomprehensible. No, he's the only true and living God who has revealed himself in creation, in your creation, and in the Holy Scriptures. And this is the God we worship. God-centered worship is not about a God in abstraction as a concept, an idea. But he is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The God who occupies the throne of heaven. The God who receives the worship of his, crea- his creatures and desires your worship. He desires that you would worship him so that we might proclaim his praise, his glory, and that we might enjoy his presence fellowshipping, enjoying his love, the embrace of a father's arms in holy worship. And so you see that worship is not just a goal, it's a life. But it's also a means. We live by worshiping. You see, worship takes our minds then off of ourselves, off of the difficulties that we are enduring even now, the struggles, and it places them on the God who is on the throne in heaven. And so as we worship God, then our souls are fed and refreshed with heaven's perspective on the reality And it reminds us, doesn't it, of what the Psalms so often remind us. Our God reigns. Yes, it might be a horrible week, but our God reigns. We might have a terrible disaster, but our God reigns. Our God reigns from his lofty throne, and he reigns for the good and prosperity of Jerusalem. He loves Jerusalem. He loves her so much, he gave his only son for her, and he shall bring his precious church to his eternal worship. And so here John is pulling back the curtain, and the door is open, and there before us we see a throne, and seated on that throne is our God. And we see that he is worshipped incessantly. And to see that is to see enough. Oh, let us worship God. Amen. Dear Father, we thank you for the open door of heaven where we can see your glory and 
know your presence. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would take us by the hand like you did John. Empower us by your Holy Spirit and enable us with wholehearted desire and vigor to worship you as our God. To see by faith our glorious, majestic, and sovereign God occupying the throne and all the mighty hosts of heaven worshiping him. Oh, may we find ourselves this morning and each worship service joining that mighty throng in the holy, beautiful worship of you, proclaiming that you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. In Christ's precious and blessed name, we ask these things. Amen. Congregation, let us, as we respond, let us take our hymnals, selection 216, 216, crown him with many crowns. Let us rise as we respond in faith and praise.